All right, all right, all right. Let's get fired up here. Maximum freedom. Read. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the next episode of the Actual Energy Podcast, podcast where we talk about movies from a Rothbardian anarcho-capitalist perspective. My name is Daniel and my co-host Robert is here with me and we're going to talk about the movie The Big Short. This is going to be episode 20, so you'll be able to find this episode at actualanarchy.com slash 20, that's two zero, and that'll be a quick and easy way to find this one. Uh, if you're listening in the car and you want to go back and find the show notes or more information on our guest who is with us, and we'll be talking about him in just a moment. But, Robert, how are you, sir? You know how you normally, like, make some kind of a punny or a funny title to each of our episodes? You're not going to call this one, like, the big shark or something like that, are you? I've outgrown that, actually. Um, ever since we rebranded to the actual Anarchy podcast, I have simply titled it with the movie name. Okay. Okay. I mean, I know you don't Good. listen to the shows, so you wouldn't be aware of this. Well, I don't want it to ruin and sully my uh, my memory of the experience. This is what I do. It's weird to hear yourself talking, Daniel. I don't know how you can stand it. I can't. I hate my own voice. But we do it enough, and I think we're getting half decent, maybe, Uh that we're able to get uh, decent guests, like the guests we have uh, about to come on. But before we get to that, I want to mention a couple of housekeeping items. Number one, uh, iTunes podcasts, Apple is changing the name for whatever reason. So now they're called Apple Podcasts. So we're supposed to refer to the show as find us on Apple Podcasts. So we've updated some of the (laughs) language on the website. They say suggested messaging. Subscribe to podcast name on Apple Podcasts. If you love the show, share it with a friend on Apple Podcasts. Never miss an episode. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts to get new episodes as they become available. So that's the uh, suggested why, messaging. Why would they make the name harder to say? iTunes is, you know, two quick short syllables, and now it's this mouthful. It's terrible. Yeah, it's kind of garbagey. Yeah. Garbage Daniel. Yeah, I'm not uh, the one calling the shots. Sorry, man. You're off the hook this time. Well, speaking of on on the hook, off the hook, we've got a guest. His name is also Daniel, and we met him in the Tom Woods Elite Group. He works in Boston for a uh, mutual fund. Is that right, Daniel? That's right. And he has intimate familiarity, or wait, you said not intimate familiarity, with derivatives. Not really intimate, yes. <laughs> which will uh, come in handy for talking about this movie, The Big Short, which is ostensibly about the housing crisis, and it has a very left-leaning perspective on it at that. But Daniel, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, 
and uh, where people can find whatever projects you're working on before we get into the movie here. Okay, so yes, my name is Daniel. I, as the other Daniel said, I work in Boston. Um, I first need to make, a, make it clear that all opinions I say here are mine and not those of my employer, should you somehow figure out who my employer is. Um, but having said that, uh, yes, I am also a member of the Tom Woods Show Elite Group. And sadly, that is pretty much my only libertarian Internet presence at the moment. Um, if you want to talk to me more, you can always come join the Tom Woods Show Facebook group, although talking to me should be about the 10 billionth reason why you would want to join that group. It's pretty freaking awesome. So if you're at all a fan of Tom Woods or libertarianism, definitely join the group. And beyond that, I'm working on an ebook, which I'm hoping to finish by the end of this year which I am modestly going to call The Truth About Economics, trying to explain in a way that a layperson can understand why Austrian economics is correct and why the Keynesian mainstream is wrong. I think a lot of people are willing, in some sense, to accept that there's a lot wrong with traditional mainstream economics, but it's very hard to know what to do with that without more guidance. But on the flip side, Austrian economics is so beautifully simple that anyone who's willing to think, think it through can really understand it and can confidently, I think, come to the conclusion that it is correct and all this Keynesian stuff we have out there is just absolutely not worth a moment's attention. So that's, that's my project for this year. And again, I hope it'll be done by this year. And so... Check back to the truth about economics.net every once in a while, and maybe I'll have something up there by then. All right, the truth about economics. That's a, that's a bold statement, man. <laughs> yes, uh, it you, is, yeah. You, you know, I just got back from Amsterdam, so, you know, this better be competing with that Amsterdam shit. <laughs> uh, just to throw a little Pulp Fiction at you guys. Yep, yeah, I got it. Uh, so, yeah, we'll uh, we'll be talking about the truth about the big short here Um from an Austrian perspective, I think that the analysis will be quite different from what is represented in the film here. Uh, so, Robert, you just watched this movie recently. Would you mind giving us a, a quick uh, synopsis, and then we'll start getting into some of the scenes and issues that we see going on in this uh, the big short? Yeah, so this is a movie unlike what we normally do. Normally, we take some kind of a normal movie, and we break it down scene by scene and dissect it for nap violations and other kind of questions about morality and justifications, that sort of thing. This movie, um, I don't think, I mean, Daniel might have some, some notes. He said he's got some notes. He claims he does. Um, there are scenes that happen in the movie. I wouldn't say that there's like anybody getting punched or shot or anything like that, but there are plenty of, say, NAP violations in terms of fraud and that sort of thing. Um, what it is, it, is, it breaks down the 2008 um, housing bubble crash, and it follows, I'd say, three main groups. You've got, um, let's see, who's the Christian Bale? He's um, a, a fund manager, a capital fund manager, I want to say. And yeah, Michael was, Burry is, what he, is who he plays. Yeah, he's like a Ph.D. doctor guy who um, just 
analyzes the numbers and he determines that, and the movie claims that he's the first guy to find out. And he faces a whole lot of pushback on wanting to short the housing market because everybody at the time thought that, well, in the history of the housing market, it's never crashed, so it's never going to crash. So you're a fool to put all this money into these short positions. And in fact, the the product didn't even exist. He had to go to different banks, different major banks in New York, and actually they created the product for him to buy because you couldn't just go up, order up a bunch of uh, credit default swaps or whatever I forget that they call it. Um, then it also follows these two kids out of a garage in Colorado who um, turn like $110,000 into $30 million in a short amount of time, but they want to become bigger players. And uh, they also catch on to what's going on, and they seek to uh, buy a bunch of swaps. And what they end up doing is not just betting on the the Bs in, in the triple Bs and the double Bs and the Bs in these mortgage-backed security products, but the actually the, the A's and the double A's, like the higher-rated stuff, because once they're what the way they're they're packaged, they're packaged all together in one giant big mess, and once enough of it fails, then the whole thing fails, and uh, they're actually the ones, apparently the only ones that um, even bet against the double A and the higher-rated stuff, and then um, I'm blanking on the third group. Oh, it's the. Um, uh, Steve it's, Carell, uh, Mark, yeah, Mark Baum is played by Steve Carell. Yes, yeah, and he's got a um, what's the bank that he's a part of? He's part of Morgan Stanley, and his fund is called Front Point. Right, they're kind of like loosely affiliated, like they're under the the umbrella, but they're not necessarily don't necessarily work for that bank, right? Right, right. So, um. And uh, he's a very pessimistic character and assumes that everybody's screwing over everybody else at all times. And he's just going around looking for fraud and uh, telling everybody that they're full of shit. Yeah, he's and, very um, angry and has a very keen bullshit detector. Right. And he actually finds out if the movie's accurate or not, I don't know. But in the movie, it's portrayed as um, a wrong number to his office looking for somebody else to a guy who's looking to sell this these uh, mortgage-backed CDO products, or the CDOs on these mortgage-backed securities. And um, who's that? Um, Ryan Gosling comes in, and he wants to sell these products to him. And the whole movie is essentially the revelation of how messed up it all is and how it's all built on this house of cards of, the housing market and how much money is actually teetering on the brink. It's all hedging on this very shaky foundation of all these mortgages and essentially just revealing how, how crappy these products actually were, were being sold by these banks and how one of the main buyers of these things were oftentimes like um, retirement funds and, um, um, help me, teacher. Um, yeah, like pensions and municipalities. Pensions, thank you. That's the word like I'm that. looking for. Yeah, right. 
in municipalities, these kind of things, um, were a lot of the chief buyers of these products. And uh, like Daniel said, it's a very much kind of lefty. I got you get the impression that it's kind of it takes that lefty narrative of um, lack of personal responsibility almost that these evil bankers are creating these terrible products and that the people buying them are just dupes and uh, have no fault of their own. Um, it takes away the the uh, individual responsibility. Like it 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 shows one trip grip um, one trip by um, the Steve Carell group down to Miami where they find these just these empty tracts of housing that have maybe a few people living in them and find that um, all these loans are just being handed out to immigrants and just anybody who wants a house. No income, no job. They call them ninja loans um, because they're just getting paid off. These mortgage brokers are just getting paid for volume. They don't care if the the loan's any good or not. He's, one line, I think, in the movie was like, I sell uh, a mortgage or I give it a mortgage on Friday and it's bought up by a big bank on Monday. So he didn't care at all. Um, and then it just goes into the collapse and how the the um, the players, none of them really super happy about it. They knew, they saw that the collapse was coming and some of them kind of felt guilty. Um the Brad Pitt character was really upset about it at one point. He just didn't want anybody to celebrate this. He gives one quote of, like, for every 1% in unemployment, 40,000 people die. Um, I don't know how accurate that is, but he seemed to believe that. Um, unemployment does cause harm, absolutely. Um, but uh, anyway, I'm kind of rambling at this point. Um, Deanna, you have some notes, so I suggest we kind of follow along what you have. And then Daniel, number two, I'm sure you've got all kinds of good insights to give. So that's it for my spiel at this point. All right, good enough. Well, I'm just going to read uh, what the Google Wiki thing says. Uh, they've got an 88% Rotten Tomato score, so it's uh, reviewed very well from the critics. 94% um, of Google users give it a positive thumbs up. So it uh, played very well in the um, critical space. But it's uh, centered on 2008 Wall Street guru Michael Burry, who's played by the uh, Christian Bale character, realizes that a number of subprime, subprime home loans are in danger of defaulting. Burry bets against the housing market by throwing more than a billion dollars of his investors' money into credit default swaps. His actions attract the attention of banker Jared Vanette, who is the Ryan Gosling character, uh, hedge fund specialist Mark Baum, who's the Steve Carell, character, and other greedy opportunists. I love the language here. Uh, together, these men make a fortune by taking full advantage of the impending economic collapse in America. So if that's not a loaded statement, I don't know what is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's almost, we were having a conversation, a private conversation uh, last night with a gentleman um, who seemed feel like if you had this kind of information, you might be under some kind of obligation to share it with everybody as opposed to profiting off of it by betting against it. Um, but it sure seemed like they were trying to let people know. I mean, at one point, the, uh, 
the Steve Carell character it seemed like he was kind of keeping things under his hat, and the Brian Gosling character was absolutely keeping his information under his hat. But what exactly they were doing wasn't necessarily secret. Or am I wrong about that, Daniel, number two? Not at all. No, that's absolutely right. Uh, they were certainly trying to get the message out there, as were many other people not depicted in the book or the movie, and just no one really wanted to hear it. No one was really listening. Um, so, And also, uh, you know, I would certainly disagree that they're under any kind of positive obligation to. Their obligation is to make money for their clients. So, Right. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, I mean, their obligation is to not engage in any fraud themselves. Uh, right. And being aware of a fraud or um, a situation where they can basically, you know, bet against something that they know is impending, uh, there's no harm in that. In fact, it actually helps the situation. Like no exactly, one would yes. Yeah, no one would have sold it to them if they didn't expect the benefit from selling it. Yes. And by taking the actions they did, they prevented it from going on even longer and becoming even more of a painful event if and when the the bubble finally pops. Yeah. Now, there's kind of a weird uh, presentation of this movie. It's almost as if it's documentary style, but then they break the fourth wall like they're trying to be a Ferris Bueller all the time. Uh, constantly, the characters like break character and then talk to you as an uh, audience member, and they try to... Um, Two instances, they kind of dumb down, or three instances, where they dumb down the uh, explanation and say, you know, rather than uh, boring you with the details, we'll have this hot woman in this bathtub explain it to you. (laughs) Um, And then another one is uh, they have Anthony Bourdain explain how uh, the the cuts that don't uh, make it in the first sale get bundled together into something else and then get packaged uh, again and sold as if it's, you know, quote-unquote new or fresh. He, he used fish as an example. And then uh, a third time is this professor um, and Selena Gomez, who was, I'm embarrassed to know this, but she was a boyfriend or girlfriend of um, Bieber, Justin Bieber, for a time. <laughs> oh, wow, I did not know that. But uh, they use these people to kind of explain these concepts uh, sort of as a, an aside, like a footnote in the movie. And it's just kind of a weird presentation style. I just wanted to point that out before we get too much further into this. I thought it was actually a really uh, clever uh, device because if they hadn't done that, there was always this danger that this material is just going to be, you know, a little too complicated for people who don't have any exposure to the to that side of things, the, the financial world at all. Um, right. Because but just by having it be sort of an occasional made. thing, it just, uh, you know, it sort of... It was a nice little gimmick, I would say. It, uh, it, it helped educate the audience without seeming, you know, preachy or condescending about it. And these things, like it's mentioned in the movie, these things are obtuse on purpose, right? And I don't know if Daniel right. number two, you agree with this or not, but um, a lot of these, I mean, they don't necessarily go out of their way to explain exactly what's happening when they're creating these products and what exactly these products are, right? You mean in the movie or in real life? Both. Okay, well, yeah, in the movie, I think it's just the details aren't all that relevant and in real life. uh, Yeah, it's true. That's um, there was certainly a lack of transparency there in the details of what all the products were, but at the same time, people were certainly willing to buy them without that knowledge in in large part because of the um, rating given to them by the rating agencies, which we'll cover later. 
So there was never really any incentive for anyone to go into more detail than was being provided. Yeah, that brings up a good point. So you've got the ratings agencies, like like you were saying, and we'll be talking about them a little bit more later. But then there's also a significant amount of regulation in this industry. I think it's, uh, if not the most regulated industry, it's, it's either number one or number two, um, medical being the other. And I think when you have a high level of regulation in a market or in a sector, uh, the players in it or the people who aren't super familiar with it will assume that the regulation is there to protect them and therefore anything that's being sold, they sort of don't have to do their own due diligence. Like they have to sort of just that, I guess the obligation of as a consumer of making sure that what they're doing is um, safe enough for their uh, investment appetite, uh, that's sort of alleviated with this false sense of security with these regulations in place. Exactly, yes. If it was important, then government would be taking care of it. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, so we mentioned uh, that they, they were saying that, you know, housing never goes down. And so when Michael Burry's character goes to get the banks to create the um, this product for him, uh, they're almost laughing at him like, oh, he's he's foolish. You know, he's going to give us all of these fees and we're never going to lose on this deal. And uh, they quote, say to each other in a kind of an aside, right? They, they say, uh, it's built on housing as the, as the backbone. It's so solid right now. Like this never, this never goes down. We'll never lose. And I thought that that was kind of interesting, uh, to note that any, any comment there? Well, yeah, certainly. Uh, it seems as if a lot of the narrative you get from people who want to find a reason to be angry at the banks is that the banks knew that all these securities were terrible and that the economy was going to crash and they were just profiting as much as possible. Well, A, I mean, if that were true, they wouldn't have lost all that money when it eventually did crash. They, you know, they took bigger losses than anyone else. So, and I forgot what my B was, but I mean, I think A pretty much covers it. I and mean, that's just pretty much falsified by the outcome there. And so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's completely nonsensical to suggest that it, this was all some sort of deliberate uh, ploy on their part. Right, yeah. Uh, I think it had a lot to do with stupidity, uh, which I think they sort of mentioned in, in this movie, um, but also the assumption that, well, the government allows this to happen, um, and there's so many rules and regulations in place, so it must be you know safe enough to do. And I think a lot of the things are built around, like that AAA rating was very important. Um, we were mentioning earlier that pensions and municipalities, retirement funds and things like that were all buying this product, but they're um, contractually obligated and even legally bound to only invest in things that have a AAA rating. And so right. there's kind of this unintended consequence of, well, we have all this money, it needs to go somewhere, but it's obligated or restricted into only AAA rated stuff. And so you're forcing funds to go into something that, incentivizes there being more AAA stuff, uh, whether it be legitimately AAA or rated as such, you know, through um, alternate means, <laughs> I guess I'd argue. Exactly, yes. And I would say even beyond stupidity, just once the bubble got going, no one in the financial sector really had an incentive to ask any hard questions about it, except these people who were willing to, go completely out on a limb and make this huge contrarian bet. The banks 
pretty much assumed that whatever happened, it would be bailed out. I don't know that firsthand. I'm just, you know, I'm, that's the narrative that's given to us in the movie. And I think that's probably correct. There was a precedent for that in the late 1990s when a huge hedge fund, long-term capital management failed and was eventually bailed out by the Fed to avoid contagion in the financial system. So I think oh, yeah. the, the large banks probably assumed they were playing with house money. That was the Greenspan the, put, right? Well, yes, exactly. Yeah, the Greenspan put just refers in general to the idea that the market will never go down in any sustained manner because the Fed is always backstopping it. Right, which is... Yeah, that was definitely... That would, that would, of course, introduce all sorts of moral hazard, right? Um, it, it's exactly. almost yeah. as if you're socializing the losses but um, allowing the pri profits to be privatized. That's exactly right. That's exactly what it is. Okay. So the banks really have no incentive to ask too many hard questions. The investors, as you were saying, are in many cases legally mandated to invest in AAA rated securities. So they don't really have, I mean, their, their hands are tied. And as you were saying before, they're used to this idea of their due diligence being somewhat outsourced to the government and the rating agencies. The rating agencies don't really have much of an incentive to do a better job because in the late 1970s, the SEC created this designation, Nationally Recognized Statistical Rating Organization, our SRO, and only gave that to these three U.S. rating agencies. And I believe there's one in Canada as well. Those are, of course, Moody's, Standard & Poor, and Fitch. So these all have the, the lion's share of the rating business. So it's not as if some competitor can come along and do a better job and take away their business because theirs are the only opinions that count. They have this artificial government-created cartel in the rating space. So they have no incentive to try too hard to figure out what's going on. So really just no one is in no one is in a position to say, does this really make sense? Just as long as things keep going, they're all they're all making their money. No one's really in a position to say, like, hey, wait a minute, this isn't right. Yeah, yeah, that's that's interesting. Um that you mentioned that, that they there is a cartel arrangement because later on in the film it's presented uh with a nearly blind person at is it standard and poor's? Yes. That, uh, you know, and that's totally like symbology, right? Or symbolism. Yeah. Uh, where she says, well, if, if we don't give them the rating they want, they just go to our competitor. And so, you know, we need the business. And it's sort of presented from this left angle that competition is, is therefore bad, right? Because they're going to do whatever it takes to uh, satisfy their greedy Wall Street customer. Right, exactly. And that's such a one-sided view. And what that really leaves out is that in a proper free market setting with real competition between rating agencies, the rating agencies that the investors would care about were the ones that showed they could do a good job safeguarding their money, right? So if, say, Moody's and S&P both did a terrible job, and Fitch, who happens to be the other NRSRO, but that's not important, um, happened to come along and do a better job rating things, then investing clients would pay a lot more attention to Fitch. And therefore, in order to sell their securities, Wall Street would have to um, get Fitch on their side. And so the competitive aspect, even if the, the Wall Street firms are still the ones paying, goes in reverse. 
competition works to the benefit of the investors. Right, and in a free market, there would be potentially hundreds of potential ratings agencies, right? And and independent uh, verification processes of whether something is safe or whatever rating is provided, right? Absolutely, yeah. There's no reason at all they're restricted to these three. Um, it's a typical example of how when government gets involved, the process just gets ossified. It's true that Moody's, S&P, and Fitch established their dominant position in the market by being the best. However, then government just said, okay, well, these are the, the best, so you all have to start paying attention to these three and pretty much only these three. Then they have no more incentive to continue working hard to stay up to date. Yeah, that's now, an excellent been, point. So go ahead, Robert. It's been, it's been nine years since this happened. What has the reputation fallout of these rating agencies happened? Has there been any? I can imagine that if they were just rubber stamping these things and it's gotten out that that's happened. I mean, why would <laughs> there has to be some sort of reputation to fall out from using these services? Oh, certainly, yeah. I mean, they got hammered in the in the press, uh, but it was really just no more than that, just reputational. Um, I'm matching they they lost um, their stock probably took a hit as well around that time. I haven't checked recently what's happened since then, but because of this structure in place where they're kind of you know artificially held in place by this S. SEC designation, there were no real consequences beyond that. So it's just more business mm. as usual. Mm. And of yeah, course, so people are refusing to learn the lessons that should be learned, which is that this rating cartel is a terrible thing in the first place. They're too busy, you know, blaming the, the banks and calling for more regulation. Right, which there there was some minor amount of deregulation in uh, the 90s, right? And then, of course, that's what a lot of the leftists will point to as the reason why this even happened to begin with? Um, actually, have yeah, a note. Maybe let's talk about let's talk about that a little bit, Daniel. If you know a whole bunch about the Glass Eagle thing, and a bunch, I know that was the big the big push after this was the the blaming it on the repeal of that. Can we talk a little exactly, bit about that, and that's about why that's crap. Yeah, that's completely inaccurate. So Glass Eagle basically was a, a law from back in the 1930s, I believe, which said that investments and commercial banking activities had to be kept separate. Um, and then that was repealed in 1999, I believe, by Bill Clinton. Um, and people then are using that as an explanation for the um, financial crisis in which the investment banks were so prominently involved. However, that really doesn't withstand any scrutiny at all because none of the investment banks were actually lending out their their commercial deposits. So it's a complete non-starter. And in fact, um, as I believe Tom Woods mentioned on his show at one point, even the Washington Post has um, an article acknowledging completely that that's, that that's, that, that that's a non-starter. It's not a, not a valid explanation at all. I'll send along the link to that later if you want to put it on the show notes page. Yeah, definitely. That would be helpful. Uh, so it sounds like it's totally a red herring. Uh, and, and I imagine that goes for the whole deregulation argument. Um, I actually have a, an email, a personal email that I received from someone, and they said to me, this is a few years ago, uh, they said, deregulating the market and Wall Street was real helpful. I imagine you believe the destructive forces unleashed in the market and in tearing down the national social contract are accomplishing good in the long run. I can't agree with you there. Wow. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What can and, you do with that? <laughs> well, I, you know, I've since learned a lot. This was uh, sent to me in 2013. Um, but I will say that uh, my journey into libertarianism, Ron Paul was a big, big component of it. But the housing crisis was another big component. And it made me look into uh, the fragility that, that was uh, prevalent in the economy. And I think, Robert, you can corroborate this. I was questioning the housing market in 2003, 2004. Well, you were definitely questioning a lot of things. Um, you were predicting a lot of financial difficulties, and you were preparing for such things back in those days. And you still maintained some of that, but not to the level that you were in those days. Yeah, my, my big thing that I noticed was that uh, housing prices, I was in Seattle at the time, and they were going up double-digit percentages, but the uh, incomes, of course, were not. So I was like, well, okay, mm-hmm. this can't be sustainable. You know, there's no way that people can buy something, turn around and sell it two months later for a 20% increase, because there's also a lot of uh, transaction costs that go along. You know, you got to pay the real estate people and a bunch of taxes and a bunch of other things. Um, but it kept going on, and there was almost this... Uh, this impending feeling that if you didn't jump in now, you weren't going to get to be able to buy anything. So there was a lot of incentive to get into the market and, and buy something uh, because, you know, of course, everyone thought it always goes up. And I even put offers in on some things, but I never pulled the trigger, and I'm glad that I didn't. <laughs> but yeah. uh, it was around that time I started uh, looking at a website called seattlebubble.com. I think that was in 2003, 2004. And I have uh, an uncle and an aunt, they're a married couple, and they work in the real estate business, and we would go to uh, Thanksgiving, Christmas gatherings. And I would say, yeah, I don't know about this housing market. And they were like, oh, no, it's great. It's never been better. You know, you, you, you can't go wrong. You know, buy a house, great idea. And I was like, I don't know about this. <laughs> and, of course, a few yeah. years later, you know, I'm proven right. Um, but have, have they, you know, come back and said, oh, you were right. Nope. <laughs> Well, yeah, as you were saying, it's, it's amazing how simple it is once you think of it in the right way. At the end of the day, the house's price fundamentally is derived from uh, how much people make and how much they can afford to pay for a house. If no one can afford to, to pay for it or can afford to pay the equivalent annual rent, then that's a nonsensical, unsustainable price. So it's amazing how simple it is when you think of it that way, and it's also amazing how few people ever do bother to think of it that way. Yeah, and I'd argue that there's another bubble going on uh, right now, um, oh, I agree. Housing, yeah. but many, many other areas as well. And and I've also heard that um, people I claim that you can't see a bubble when you're in it. You can only see it after the fact. And I would disagree with that. And they actually make mention of that in the film that you can always see markers or indicators of of uh, things that uh, wouldn't normally happen in a normal market. Uh, can you speak to that at all, Daniel? Yeah, I mean, I absolutely agree with you. You certainly can. Uh, the points that Michael Burry uh, brings up in the film. Um, those are certainly all markers um, of, a, of a housing bubble. But in general, anytime, as we were just talking about now, anytime a price is rapidly rising and is clearly divorced from what any kind of fundamental analysis indicates it should be, then, yeah, it's not, not difficult at all to, to see. It's difficult to profitably do anything with that information because 
As John Maynard Keynes said in one of his few moments of wisdom, the market can stay irrational longer than you can stay solvent, but it's not really difficult to realize that that something is distorted, especially because um, those of us with any background in Austrian economics know that the fundamental cause of a bubble is artificial credit expansion. So you have a pretty, you have another marker from a different angle there, just what is the, what has the central bank been up to? And if they've been pumping credit into the economy nonstop, then, you know, big surprise. Not that surprising when, uh, when bubbles start forming shortly after that. Yeah. So not to divorce us, I'm using that word again, uh, cause you brought it up, but, uh, from the movie too much, but with all the money that was created during the bailouts, where is the inflation that should have accompanied that? Is it in the stock market and in some of the assets that uh, have been climbing? Because we don't see it as much in our day-to-day consumables. Yes, you're absolutely right. It's in, it's confined to assets, and it's also been somewhat exported overseas. Um, the United States, having the world's reserve currency, is in a great position. Um, um, foreign governments, in particular, are always willing to add to their dollar reserves, although some of our major um, purchasers of dollars have been less willing to do so recently, let's say. So things are starting to get somewhat interesting there. However, certainly throughout recent history, much of what the government has created has been absorbed by foreign sovereigns. And the rest, I would say, yes, certainly has shown up in increasing asset prices here at home. It's an extremely misleading and self-serving definition of inflation that only looks at consumer prices. Um, Asset prices are really just as much a part of the economy. And to create a bunch of money, pump up asset prices, and then say, look, there's no inflation because consumer prices are flat. It's just, it's so pointless. Yeah, that goes along with the whole idea of government statistics. I mean, they change the parameters all the time. Uh, and then they try to compare them across time, and it doesn't make any sense to me how they can, you know, look at CPI in 1950, 1960, 1970, when they've been changing how they configure the number across that entire spectrum, and then they treat it as if it's some, you know, it tells them something. It's it's bizarre to me. Yeah, that's very true. It's not even a particularly well-defined calculation in the first place. The whole concept of a price level, you know, is arbitrary and rather meaningless. Right, and and it's really an aggregate of supply and demand functions and technological advancement. Um, And we see it in the technology sector, you know, like uh, computers increase in power and uh, decrease in cost uh, dramatically as the market expands. And a lot of those things are, those goods are measured in the CPI and that I think has a depressing effect, uh, which, of course, they want, right? They want to show a lower number uh, in the CPI, yet they leave out many of the things that um, are more tied to uh, actual increases in money supply, which would be uh, your more necessary goods like uh, energy, like oil or food, things like that. That's right, yes. There's this measure of core CPI, which leaves out things like energy. So, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a mess from beginning to end. All right, well, let's swing this back to the movie with uh, um, the Steve Carell character who's angry all the time, and he's late to a meeting. I guess it's an anger management meeting or some kind of a grief 
counseling meeting where he says, <clears throat> there's no cabs in this town. Uh, and he's, he's, of course, in New York. And I always like to bring this up because, you know, this is clearly before Uber, right? Um, <laughs> yes. But uh, uh, we've got a couple of clips from Murray that um, I can play at some point or, or maybe link in the show notes page if I can find them, where he talks about the regulation in the taxi industry, which capped the number of taxi cabs that could operate in the city, like in uh, 1935, and it remained at that level until, I think, 1990. Um, and so, of course, you know, there's going to be a shortage when there's a government-imposed uh, uh cap on the number of licenses that are available. So I found, I found that kind of interesting uh, to make note of. That's true, yeah. And, of course, uh, Steve Carell's character never once thought of that as having anything to do with it, did he? <laughs> nope. Just, ah, nope. there are no cabs. Ah, the banks are evil. <laughs> same same principle. Yeah, he, he was pissed at the banks for having 25% credit card uh, rate and uh, student loans that no one could ever pay back, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it seems kind of... It, it, it's weird. Like, these were clearly you know, really intelligent people, but they didn't have an, a, an actual understanding of, of what was truly going on behind the scenes. And I think that uh, the book that you're working on, The, the True Economics, um, I mean, I think that that's going to be enlightening for a lot of people, you know? Yeah, I hope so. It's really, uh, you know, economics is such a powerful tool for understanding all these things. Uh, once you once you get a few core propositions, then the rest just falls into place, both with economics and finance and thinking about the world in general. So I think everyone should be interested in e- economics, although it seems very few, few people actually are. Right. Uh, another thing I want to mention was the Michael Burry character. They show a couple of... Um scenes uh, of his office and there's an Adam Smith book in there so I think that they're presenting him as this uh, capitalist or this laissez-faire type person even though Adam Smith really yeah. wasn't um, yeah I noticed that <laughs> but there's some, yeah they're trying to like set the scene like you know he's this doggy dog capitalist he's just going to go for wherever the profits are um, and then shortly thereafter they, they present uh, the mortgage backed security uh, as a good thing the government mortgage backed security and it's all triple A but then they, they mentioned that these private ones over here, uh, they're not as good. Like, they're bad because they're private. I thought that was kind of an interesting presentation. <laughs> yeah, the movie was full of uh, sort of little leading innuendos like that. Like, even right at the very beginning when you have, when they're talking about how banking used to be boring, and then they have this banker shaking hands with a guy and saying, how are your wife and kids or something like that? Sort of like, oh, back then it was all family oriented and they cared about each other. And then they have the Louis Renieri character, the guy who invented the mortgage backed security as saying, let's make some money. You know, then that's when banking became evil and greedy and all that. So yeah, there, there are these very shallow kind of innuendos there throughout the movie. Right. Uh, there was one other thing that, I wanted to bring up, and Robert, maybe you can chime in on this. Uh, you remember the, the spot where they're like, are you sure about your math? And he goes, yeah, look at my quant. Look at his face. <laughs> and they say, that's racist, because <laughs> it's this uh, Chinese guy uh, who you know, supposedly like won the national competition for math. Uh, did you guys have any comment on that? Mm, I mean, I thought it was funny. I I could see... It seemed kind of strange and out of place in the movie a little bit, um, just because the left is so obsessed with race and 
thinks racists are just the worst, most evil people in the world. Um, but, uh, no, I didn't necessarily have a problem with that. I thought it was kind of cute. I thought it was kind of funny that the, that the actual Chinese guy just went along with it. No problem. Even though it was mostly lies, like he did speak English and he got second place in the competition, but, um, he understood the, you know, his role was to be silent and to seem more imposing as a, as a mathematical force, I suppose. Right. And he also yeah. broke the fourth wall telling that story, right? Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I thought that scene was really, uh, was really pretty hilarious. And in fact, I thought Ryan Gosling was really terrific throughout the movie. I know um, Christian Bale got the awards for sporting actor and everything, but I thought Ryan Gosling was equally good. Um, so yeah, and then uh, regarding how that was kind of out of place in the movie, it seems that, that was something the, the movie struggled with a bit. Um, was choosing which little anecdotes and scenes from the book to bring in. Um, there are a lot that make sense in the you know, context of a book that don't translate quite as well to movie, but it seems they just brought a lot of them in almost without thinking about it. So was that one mm-hmm. in the book? It's a little bit different in the book. I think it's uh, the Ryan Gosling character. It's basically just says, how can a guy who can't speak English lie or something like that? Um, I, there wasn't all that whole like stunned about look at his face or anything like that that was added for effect. Although right. for all I know, maybe, maybe that's what happened in in reality and the book um, watered it down a bit. Yeah, well, not not to uh, microaggress here, but I think that perhaps they were coloring the uh, character, the Ryan Gosling character, as a bad guy because he's a capitalist. Uh, by making mm. him racist, like virtue signaling to the left uh, and having some symbolism there. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me. Did you get the impression, though, that the Gosling character was like a bad guy? I, I got the impression that he was kind of a uh, like a neutral, not necessarily a good guy, not necessarily a bad guy. Um, I, I struggled with whether or not I was watching. Hey, Robert, Heroes. Robert, Robert, you're getting a lot of, uh, lot of noise. Really? You sound better now. Huh. I, I don't know what's happening. It's dead silent in here. Um, okay. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. That's all right. Um, I didn't really see a whole lot of villainry going on, but maybe I wasn't paying as close attention as I should have. Um, there definitely were some digs at capitalists and that sort of thing, but I don't know if the, the movie was overly critical to its, its protagonist, its main characters. What did you guys see? Do you want to take that? Yeah, I felt like they were painting uh, capitalism as, as bad, as the problem being not only greed, but then also a blind eye from government and ineptitude from uh, rating agencies, like we talked about before, where uh, they were portraying the ratings agency having competition as a bad thing for uh, protecting people. Uh, I, I, it's, it's sort of to be, to be expected that they're going to present things in that light, of course, because um, they have a narrative to tell, right? This is all based on people all of a sudden got greedier, <laughs> and all of a sudden the government was complicit in uh, allowing it to happen, um, whereas they weren't ever before, which, of course, they were. You know, uh, it's been kind of an ongoing process, right? This collusion, this cronyism between government and uh, those with entrenched interests. Like 
Daniel, you were saying that ratings agencies were the biggest ones in the 1970s, and then they became the cartel that uh, continued on. Well, that's another example of this cronyism, and it uh, allowed them to act in a more bureaucratic method, no longer continuing to improve, no longer really competing with each other, providing uh, service or having to compete with upstarts. And, you know, just imagine if this had happened in, uh, say, the video game industry at the same time. You know, we'd have uh, still Atari and uh, ColecoVision and maybe some other outfit uh, being the uh, cartel video game providers, uh, you know, 30, 40 years later. Yeah, that's a great analogy. All right. I was hoping that would elicit a little bit more, but that's all right. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just, that's, that's really great. It does it all. I mean, you know, as soon as, uh, I mean, government can't act without changing incentives in some way and, the classic example is once they start conferring favors on you, then you um, lack the incentive to go out and truly excel and provide value. So it's basically just economic incentives 101, which is unfortunately something that many people struggle to, to grasp. Right, yeah, very much of it is uh, all geared towards protection, protectionism. Um, so... You know, when, once they're in that position of power, they want to keep upstarts and, and competition are out. Uh, One thing I have to... to... No, go ahead. Oh, I just wanted to uh, get into the uh, presentation scene where he has the Jenga stuff, but if there was something, some other comment you wanted to make before we get into that, go ahead. Well, yeah, I was just going to say, um, this is a general point that I probably should have brought up earlier. The movie is actually pretty faithful to um, the book, which is by Michael Lewis. I think it came out in 2010 or so. Um, so it's, it's definitely Michael Lewis's narrative and opinions that the movie is um, advancing here, and they're pretty faithful to it. Um, and one sort of amusing thing, though, in the book, Michael Lewis has Michael Burry talk about the importance of incentives, or I believe it's actually Charlie Munger, Warren Buffett's uh, right-hand man. Uh, Lewis quotes a speech by Charlie Munger in which he talks about how important incentives are. And Munger says, I thought I was one of the best at understanding incentives, but every year I realized there's more and more that I didn't understand about how powerful they are in explaining things, something like that. And so it's just very funny that Michael Lewis quotes that at such length and never seems to draw any lessons from it, because, of course, all of what we've been talking about so far is just incentives 101. You look at the incentives and you understand everything that happened. No one really had an incentive to do anything different than what they did. It's not necessarily greed, stupidity, fraud, any of this. It's just government interfering in the markets and distorting all the incentives that people would normally have to create better outcomes. Yeah, so I got a question. Um, when these big banks were selling these products, and they were filled with all these subprime loans and terrible things. They were selling them to, like, pensions and whatnot. Do you, do you think they were committing fraud? Did they know what was in the product themselves? I mean, I, in my mind, the, the, the buyer, let the buyer beware. Are they, they're under all the, you know, obligation to understand what it is they're purchasing. But do you think there was fraud or just negligence going on on the part of the, the sellers of these products? Well, I, 
I certainly don't think there was any fraud, at least from the, the facts as I understand them, as they're presented in the, the movie and the book. Not, and again, this is not something I have any firsthand knowledge of at all. Um, basically, it's not really up to the seller to look out for the buyer's interests or to provide the buyer with information that the buyer hasn't asked for in order to complete the contract. And certainly, unless they were either misrepresenting the contents of the securities or somehow guaranteeing a return or lack of risk of the securities, which of course they wouldn't do, that's you know beyond illegal, then I don't see any case for fraud at all. And I don't think it's even particularly negligent. It's just, you know, here's a product. Does anyone want it? And just the market really did want it. So not really much else they should have been doing. It's not their job to do the rating agency's job or to be saints or anything like that. It's their job to make money for their shareholders. All right. So ultimately, in my mind, the fault of this entire situation lies on the individual actors buying things that they didn't couldn't afford and the government offering these incentives these terrible incentives do you see it differently or would you agree with me on that i would agree okay all right daniel let's talk about your jenga scene all right so we sort of brought it up already with the uh, his quant and uh, the racist comment but uh, shortly after doing that presentation with the jenga where they you know basically the the lower tranched pieces are on the bottom and the higher rated stuff's at the top and that they show it collapsing. Uh, he breaks it down to them and says, I'm standing in front of a burning house and selling you fire insurance on it. You need to take this deal. You know, that, that was his pitch to them. And that just reminded me of what Obamacare essentially is, right? <laughs> yes. Like it's no longer insurance if the house is already on fire. And just like it's no longer insurance if you already have a condition and then you want to buy insurance against the condition. <laughs> did anyone else yeah, notice that? I did not notice the Obamacare connection, but that's a great point. Uh, just obviously the, the difference here is that with Obamacare, that's completely by design. In this case, it's insurance on a burning house just because no one has realized that it's burning yet. Right, and the Corel character mentioned that uh, the CDOs are dog shit wrapped in cat shit, right? Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, I wonder if there was a blooper in this scene because he knocks down the tower, right? And then he knocks it down again. Like, doesn't he slide it all into the garbage can? Did he have two towers? Is he pulling some Lord of the Rings shit on us, or was that... Oh, wow, I did not notice that. <laughs> no, I didn't, didn't notice <laughs> Yeah, the tower gets magically rebuilt, uh, but uh, I, I, yeah, it's a funny little aside, but yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I wonder if, if I were to look at the trivia on this, they'd say, you know, like uh, continuity error or something like that. You know, if you look, um, oh, I didn't see this actually on Amazon where you can do the x-ray thing. I saw this on Netflix where, you know, you can just basically play it and that's pretty much it. But I digress. <clears throat> So the next thing I wanted to mention was uh, the two guys from Colorado who turned $110,000 into $30 million, and then they go to New York, and they're aware of um, some dislocations in the market they want to take advantage of. That's sort of how they were able to turn their $100,000 into 30, or $30 million. They would take something that if they were lose on it, they would only lose a small amount, but if they hit, it would pay them off really big, and so they were able to do very well with that model. 
they want to get into this um, shorting the housing market situation, but they can't because of government regulations that require them to have an ISDA. Uh, and maybe you can uh, talk about that a little bit, Daniel. But there's a capital requirement that uh, they discover after they talk with uh, a banker. And they say, oh, we, we manage a $30 million fund, thinking that they've you know done really well and therefore they should be able to get a seat at the table of this thing. But the government <laughs> requires that they have a fund uh, of more than a billion dollars. I think it's $1.5 billion uh, to even be able to get this certificate. Right. So I'm, that's something I'm not too familiar with when it comes to the details. However, yes, obviously that's just another artificial restriction in the market. Although I found it kind of funny in the movie how the little text that comes up on the screen there is when it's defining ISBA is something to uh, keep stupid amateurs away or something like that. Yeah, I noticed Whereas that the whole... Yeah, the whole narrative of the movie is about how, you know, Wall Street is screwing people, right? So isn't it a good thing that the amateurs are being kept away? I seem a little contradictory there. Mm. Yeah, well, you know, it's just another factor of government regulation being involved uh, in this whole process. And, and I think, of course, it goes back years. And any level of deregulation that people now looking back, uh, blame this situation, and I think they only need to look at uh, a chart that I'll be posting in the show notes, which shows an ever ever increasing burden of regulations. Um, I think the chart shows uh, 7,400 rules in 1976, and by 2009 it was 170,000. So it, it increased uh, roughly 7,000 per year, slowed down slightly. It's, it's, it's more akin to how they uh, describe budget decreases or cuts in the budget, which are merely reductions in increased spending. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> so I think this uh, red, uh, red herring of uh, deregulation was at fault um, is clearly debunked, and I'll post this chart down below. But it's, it's almost an exponential graph of growth in regulations in this, in this uh, financial sector. Yeah, but of course, it's somehow like an axiom that if something bad happens, it's because government didn't regulate hard enough, right? Right, yeah, exactly. When they just keep adding more and more regulations and more and more. I, I don't know even know how many um, lettered agencies deal with uh, the finance industry, like the SEC and, and a bunch of other ones, but I'm sure it's an alphabet soup uh, and, and growing all the time. It sure is, and it just got worse after the crisis thanks to the Dodd-Frank Act. All right, yeah, and and then there was the Sarbanes-Oxley. Was that uh, that was after the uh, two thousand, or that was after the MCI thing, right? Uh, I believe so. I'd have to check on that. It was definitely before Dodd-Frank. Right. Okay. Well, let's talk a little bit more about um, Robert. You were saying that that the people buying these houses. Uh, Maybe they, they felt like it was a safe thing to do, um, but that was because they weren't doing their own due diligence. But they were, you know, they had strippers buying like five or six houses uh, on these adjustable rate mortgages, like ninja loans, no income, no job verification. And I've heard, and they don't talk about this in the movie, that there were incentives by government uh, to get more diversified. Uh, people into houses. Like there was a big push for this um, to relax lending standards for certain people based on uh, demographics. 
And I think later in the movie they say, oh, they're going to blame it on poor people and immigrants, uh, which this sort of sounds like that is what's going on here. But I, I believe there was a push for, um, you know, creating more, quote-unquote, opportunity for people who didn't have good credit to be able to make purchases or people who were buying in, um, you know, inner-city type areas. Uh, are you familiar with any of that, Daniel? Yes, that was the uh, Community Reinvestment Act, which um, I believe was first put into law in uh, 1977, but then was updated many times throughout the 80s and 90s. And yes, as you said, its stated purpose was to um, basically it mandated that banks had to extend credit as needed within their communities with the very obvious subtext being that um, anything that had any kind of discriminatory look to it in terms of outcomes was no longer allowed. Right, and this was all like percentage-based, right? So if they were at 9%, they had to basically go out of their way to, to get it over the threshold of 10%, right? So they had to go seek right. out somebody who would get them their number. Um, and, of course, this is another regulation that's in, in the way of people doing something they would normally have uh, you know, done differently, right? This is intended to modify behavior of actors. And, of course, it, it, it's another contributing factor of regulations and uh, government interventions that contributed to the problem to begin with. Exactly, yes. It's the sort of missing piece, which I think we forgot to mention last time on the list of all the incentives. So the mortgage lenders now have an incentive to be extending loans to unqualified borrowers. The investment banks have incentive to be willing to have those loans on their books because if something goes wrong, they know they'll probably get bailed out anyway. Um, investors have incentive to be willing to take the uh, crappy um, subprime mortgage bonds and CDOs that the banks generate out of these loans because they're rated AAA. Rating agencies have no incentive to stop rating them AAA. But you see, there's just, yeah, this comedy of errors when it comes to incentives being distorted. So they're basically setting up the dominoes that wouldn't, you know, if if they hadn't set them up this way, they wouldn't have knocked each other down, right? Exactly, yeah. And plus, we forgot to mention also, with the Fed's low interest rate policy, which is what cause, causes the bubble in the first place, as we know from, from Austrian theory, which causes the, the business cycle. It also creates more incentive for investors to turn a blind eye to risk because they have to look for higher yields. All of the, the safe investments are now uh, yielding much lower than is required by their return requirements. So a lot of these, they defined pensions or something like that. They really have to look hard to find something that's, that has a sufficient rate of return. It's still rated AAA. Pretty much by process of elimination, you're going to get something that's rated AAA but probably shouldn't be. Right, because there's an incentive to have it. There's people seeking it out, demanding it, and so they got to find something that they can uh, supply that with, right? Exactly. So, yeah, this is just, uh, yeah, regulation and intervention after another building upon itself. Uh, it's sort of like you're trying to, you know, start a fire. Uh, you, you put your kindling on the bottom, and then you, you put a little bit of, uh, you know, dried moss or laundry lint in there or whatever, and you start building it up. And that's what this essentially is doing. Uh, you're, and then you're pouring gasoline on it with the CDOs and the CDSs and all that stuff. 
that's right. It's certainly true that these um, CDOs and these uh, products like that um, in bubble conditions, they enable the bubble to go on for longer and to reach greater heights of absurdity, but they're not the real underlying cause of the bubble or of the economic problems or of the losses that people end up taking. It's just sort of an instrument. Right, yeah. Had those dominoes not be set uh, ahead of them, knocking into them, it wouldn't have, they wouldn't have uh, combusted. Right. And I should add, actually, the uh, mortgage-backed security is really a wonderful invention, which is actually very poorly explained in the movie. Um, at the outset, I remember they have Louis Ranieri saying, uh, when we package them together, the yield goes up, but the risk is the same because they're mortgages or something like that. Um, that's a really crummy explanation. Um, from an investor's point of view, there's actually a lot of risk in an individual mortgage. And it's not really about default. It's more about prepayment. Because, you know, when interest rates go down, people prepay their mortgages faster. And that gives the investor unexpected cash flows at a time when the interest rate at which he can reinvest it is lower. So that's a real negative when it comes to investing in mortgages from an investor's point of view. And what the mortgage-backed security does is take this pool of mortgages and then parcel up the cash flows in a structure that's acceptable to different classes of investors. So they're more stable and predictable and therefore more investable. So that's a really great win-win product, which would definitely exist in an anarcho-capitalist world with a free market. It helps the investors, and by bringing more investors into the picture, it helps people who want to buy houses and get a mortgage to get a much better better deal. They have much more credit available to them. Okay, I'm going to need to rewind that one back and play it a few times before it clicks in my head. But uh, <laughs> it sounds like you know what you're talking about, so I'll give you extra credit on that one. <laughs> okay. Uh, and they actually make a mention of that, that uh, in the movie, if, if somebody sounds authoritative, then people will believe them because um, they're looking for somebody to explain something. Like they're looking for somebody to uh, uh, be authoritative. I think that's near the end of the movie, but we're not quite there yet. Yeah, um, but that's I, certainly true in life. It's all about just, uh, you know, take it till you make it. Is that the thing? Well, how do you think we made it to episode 20? <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> Uh, one thing that wasn't brought up a whole bunch in this movie, but um, I wanted to ask you about is where does Fanny and Freddie, where do they fit into this? And I'll, I'll preface this with um, back in the day when I was living in Seattle, I had a friend who worked at Washington Mutual, and he would explain to me that they were buying up loans from places and then reselling them like almost immediately and making money on it. I, I think they were selling them to Fanny and Freddie. Um, but do, am I misremembering that? Is that not something that they do? Maybe you can explain how that fits into this whole thing, and is it, in fact, another domino? It is indeed another domino. And, yeah, you're remembering correctly. They were backstopping subprime mortgages before the investment banks really got into the game. And because Fannie and Freddie, even though they're not um, technically fully guaranteed by the government, since they're quasi-government agencies, there was this explicit sense that the government would always bail them out if necessary. That just added to all the moral hazard involved when it came to originating these subprime loans and then sending them off to Fannie and Freddie. The assumption was the uh, that those institutions would never be allowed to fail. 
so yeah, that's you know moral hazard up the wazoo, and as you said, another domino. All right, so so pencil this out for me. So you've got a a, a person buying a house, and you've got a mortgage company that is presented in the movie as taking advantage of immigrants and people who can't speak English, whatever. Uh, but they're writing loans with very little documentation because there's incentive by the government to do so. And then right. they turn around and sell those to the bigger banks or two banks. Yes. And then yes. the banks turn around and sell them to Fannie and Freddie. Uh, yes. Although I believe um, also the mortgage, um, the mortgage lenders would also often sell the loans directly to Fannie and Freddie. Okay, and then Fannie and Freddie are the ones doing the packaging to make them into a mortgage-backed security that then the pensions and the other uh, uh, investors purchase. Is that is that how that works? I'm not uh, too familiar with the details, um, so I don't want to you know say something incorrect there. Um, certainly in the movie, that's more what the banks are doing. Um, what Fannie and Freddie did with the loans on their books, I'm not I'm not 100% sure of. Okay. Well, it's something I'm just trying to understand, and maybe uh, Tom Woods goes into it in his book Meltdown a little bit. I know you said you read that a couple of years ago, and you don't have a copy of it anymore because you loaned it out. Um, but I'm just, I'm trying to, you know, wrap my head around how this all uh, would diagram out, you know. Yeah, Meltdown is a fantastic book. If you're going to read one book that about the, this whole episode, it should be that one. Yeah, you were telling us before that 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 was the book that converted you to. Uh, being an ANCAP or a libertarian or, or talk about that a little bit. Well, sure. I was already a libertarian. Um, I had been ever since college, um, but I didn't really pay much attention to the economic side of things. I was just a sort of libertarian on principled grounds. Um, I, I studied economics in college. You know, I learned from these very eminent authoritative figures. So it didn't occur to me that they could be just, you know, completely wrong in their worldview. And then that all changed when I discovered Meltdown uh, because I had actually read some of Human Action in college, which is kind of random. I mean, it's not um, very often that anyone without an explicit interest in Austrian economics will just happen to read some of Human Action. But somehow I ended up getting a copy and reading some of it. And I liked Mises, but I didn't totally get it. You know, it was all these you know big words and talk about praxeology and stuff and I could tell he was a free market guy, which made him okay in my book, but I didn't really get it. And then when I read Meltdown, it was like, oh, yeah, that's what he was talking about. It was like this very delayed light bulb moment for me. Uh, yeah, I've, I've made an effort, a few attempts at reading Human Action, but I couldn't get past uh, a couple of chapters just because there are so many uh, German translated words that, I, you know, big, long words that, that mm -hmm. I think are maybe – German themselves that I just couldn't uh, follow very easily. Uh, so I, right, I, even the uh, even the English is, is might as well be German sometimes. Right. Yeah. So I find Rothbard a lot easier for me to ingest, and it sounds like Tom makes it even uh, easier than that. I've read a few of Tom's works, uh, but not Meltdown yet. I, I did actually buy a copy of it um, at the Mises event in Seattle last year and had Tom sign it, but I gave it to that guy that I read the email from to to you guys earlier. Oh, no. So hopefully he's read it and will have changed his mind from what you wrote me a few years ago. <laughs> oh, yeah. All the chance, I guess. All right. So, so uh, yeah, Meltdown is terrific. And also, um, for those who want to um, 
get a handle on human action. Bob Murphy has a kind of condensed version called Choice, which is also a really great and very accessible read. Hint, hint, Robert. Uh, that's the book I gave you last year. That's right. Robert doesn't read the book. It's okay, though. He'll get to it eventually. I have them. I, I sleep with them underneath my pillow. Osmosis. Sorry, Drake. That's right. Osmosis. Uh, I don't know if you remember from uh, yeah, the episode we did them. with Drake, but you said osmosis was a word that was uh, a microaggression against him. Trigger word. Oh, right, because it only applies to water or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, so he said, uh, Robert kept saying osmosis, and I said, well, you're, you're raping him with osmosis. Ouch. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so uh, we're, we're actually getting close to the end of my notes here, um, but it, uh, I'm at the point where we're at the ratings agency, and, of course, they're representing her symbolically as being blind, right? And she's talking about competition is evil, and if they don't give them the rating they want, they'll just go somewhere else. And uh, Steve Carell character says, um, you're making plenty of money. Why don't you make less and do the right thing? And his character, uh, his partner, Vinny, I think is his name, says, you're, you're selling rating, um, you know, as if it's an unethical thing to do. And uh, one of them makes a comment because uh, she says that her boss told her to do it, and, and you know, that's why she did it, and she's okay. Uh, I think it's Carell who says, uh, so anyone who has a boss can't be held responsible and that reminded me of um, the Nuremberg trials. And, and, Robert, this might be your wheelhouse a little bit. Uh, because there was a boss telling them that, hey, this is how we want it done, does that absolve the uh, individual from uh, the responsibility of taking the action in the employ of, um, you know, their boss? Only if coercion is involved. If the person freely makes their choice voluntarily, then absolutely not. And I don't know how much simpler I can put it. Uh, just because your boss tells you to do a thing, you're under no obligation morally to do it. Uh, practically, you may feel like you need to do it to continue to feed your family and whatnot. But if there's no coercion, you can always, if you object to something, doing something morally or on any other grounds, you know, if it, if it betrays your conscience, you get a different job. Do something else. <laughs> You were responsible for your own actions. So yeah, that 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 explains that um, that doesn't fly with me. So you were agreeing with the Carell character. Basically, he was calling her out and saying, "Why are you doing this? Just because you have a boss who said to do it? That's ridiculous, you know." Because he was calling it out to her as being an illegal, uh, fraudulent thing, right? Right. Yeah, it's like yeah. you know, my dad said it was okay, so I did it. Fine. It's kind of like something you would hear. Five-year-old thing, right? Yeah. Uh, any comment on that, Daniel? Yeah, I mean, I agree. Just, uh, I think though, it's probably not a hundred percent clear to some, you know, mid-level employee at a ratings agency that what they're doing is, you know, completely wrong. I mean, obviously, we can see that with hindsight, but I don't think it rises to the level of them doing something knowingly illegal or knowingly doing something that's going to have a deleterious effect on the world and just doing it because the boss said to. I think there were definitely some um, situations where low-level employees tried to bring it up to their superiors that something was wrong and the superior said not to think about it. Um, but I, I, don't, I don't think there's necessarily that much of an obligation for anyone to then put their career 
in jeopardy just based on their own suspicion that something is not quite right. I think it's kind of a, you know, gray area. Yeah, I think that's a good point because, uh, of course, with hindsight, we have a lot more information at our fingertips here. Um, and they have, in the moment, very limited information and maybe not uh, enough perspective to realize that what they're doing uh, is part of a larger thing that ends up being a fraudulent deal, but their small part of it, um, you know, contributes towards it, but isn't on its face uh, fraudulent to begin with. And right. I also think there was a lot of denial in the film. Um, you know, everyone was like, oh, of course this will never go down. Like, so th there's sort of this um, inertia against there being a problem. So, you know, denial ain't just a river in Egypt. It's also one of the big things driving this forward in the movie uh, and, and continuing on because no one uh, will acknowledge that it's existence, you know, that this is even happening until it's too late. Right. For sure, yeah. It's like what we were saying earlier, like no one really has an incentive to be asking the really hard questions until something really goes wrong. Everyone just, their incentive was to just keep going with the flow. Yeah, even as it was happening. I mean, they went down to, towards the end of the movie, they went down to that uh, conference and Steve Carell is giving a talk with that other investor guy. And he was saying how he was still going to invest in Bear Stearns, even as Bear Stearns was collapsing, like literally as they were talking. As they had, Bear Stearns had lost like 30% of its stock value as they were talking, and the guy was still saying how what a great value it would be. Right, yeah, good point. Yeah, all right. So, hey, the next scene I want to bring up is uh, the Las Vegas one because they suspect that, um, you know, all of this, is is happening, but they're wondering how they're going to get screwed on this deal. So they go down to Las Vegas to basically investigate and see who they're betting against. You know, like is is it legitimate what they're doing? Uh, are they? Because even they don't believe it themselves, right? Like there's no way that this can actually be happening. They're almost in denial. But then they go down there and they see that everyone's like basically a toolkit um, who's totally oblivious to all of these uh, issues going on, uh, living it up. The high life is going on. Uh, and there's a scene where um, I think one of their cousins works for the SEC and she happens to be in town and he approaches her to see if she's aware of any um, bad things going on. And in the film, it's presented that, oh, well, the SEC had their budget cut, so you know we hardly investigate anything anymore. I feel like it's presented as if um, more deregulation uh, not funding government adequately contributed to the problem. Yeah, I think that's correct. Also, in that scene, uh, she makes a big deal about wanting to go work for the bank. So there's definitely this kind of juxtaposition, like the evil, greedy bank with all the money is, you know, getting the employees. And the poor, unfunded government is just, they have their their hands tied. They can't police the world anymore. Right, right. and then the, there's the, re the revolving door thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's just all... Which is a real thing. Sure. Right. I mean, but the it, head of the Fed's always like some ex-Goldman guy or whatever. Right. There certainly is a, a, a revolving door of regulators and the regulated. Um, and you see these cronyist uh, arrangements all the time, um, not even uh, stuck just to finance, but you'll see it like with Monsanto and, and the Department of Agriculture and all of these things. But I'd argue that in a Kapistan, this wouldn't even exist, right? Like the regulators wouldn't, like the political process wouldn't 
the apparatus wouldn't be there for them to, uh, what do they call it, regulatory capture? To, That's right. Uh, you know, to take over. Uh, there would be, you know, independent uh, ratings agencies, um, a competing marketplace, uh, a way to um, have market knowledge of uh, whether something is, is a good thing or not. Like we've talked about this in the past, Robert, with um, like Yelp or uh, you don't need, you know, a restaurant food handler's permit or a health inspector or a haircutting license or something along those lines mandated by government there would be something in the private marketplace that would serve that um, to uh, to consumers who, you know, wanted to have certain information about a service or a product, right? It'll serve it, and it'll serve it far better than the government ever would or could. Absolutely. Right, and it would also remove this sort of implied, like, oh, the government's handling it, therefore I don't need to worry about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it would create a more... A less lazy consumer, let's put it that way. All right. Um, another scene at the uh, Las Vegas was where Carell's character is, is talking to the CDO manager. I think they're at the sushi restaurant. And Carell's just getting really pissed off at this guy. He's pretty flippant about... Um, he, he claims that he's there uh, representing the investors, like protecting the investors. But he uh, gets funds from the bank that he's managing the funds for that he's supposed to be watching out for. Like, I don't know if he was needing to regulate them in a way, but I, I didn't quite fully understand. But, but basically, the interest that he was supposed to be protecting the consumers, but he was being paid by the government, or not by the government, but by the bank themselves uh, to provide information that the banks wanted to be presented out to the world. Did you guys, Daniel, does that make sense? Or maybe you can explain a little bit better. Yeah, so yeah, that's right. That's a kind of complicated situation. So this guy is a CDO manager. So theoretically, he represents the investors who he is selling CDOs for to. And he's supposed to be, you know, looking out for their interests, making sure the CDOs and their portfolios are good ones. Um, But in reality, you know, he's kind of, um, also has this relationship with, I believe it's Merrill Lynch, who wants to be selling the, the CDOs. So as long as he, he maintains a cozy relationship with them and um, makes sure that Merrill Lynch CDOs are going out to his investors, then they have some kind of deal with him where he is well compensated in some way. Um, actually, yeah, uh, sorry. The reason I was hesitating there is there was a really um, interesting passage in the book of this very scene, so I was just looking for for that. I want to re- I want to read it to you if I can. Um, sure. So this is where this is Michael Lewis uh, narrating here. He says the CDO manager was further charged with monitoring the hundred or so individual subprime bonds inside each CDO and replacing the bad ones before they went bad with better ones. That, however, was mere theory. In practice, the sorts of investors who handed their money to Wing Chow, that's the guy, the CDO manager in the movie, and thus bought the AAA-rated trench of CDOs, German banks, Taiwanese insurance companies, Japanese farmers' unions, European pension funds, and in general, entities more or less required to invest AAA bonds, did so precisely because they were meant to be foolproof, impervious to losses, and unnecessary to monitor or even think about very much. 
So that's exactly, you know, to a T what we were talking about before, how um, no one really cares about the CDOs because the investors only care that it's rated AAA. And so there's no incentive for this Wing Chow guy to be really paying attention to what's in them. The investors just, you know, want their AAA. So any any guy like him can just bring them AAA CDOs from Merrill Lynch and everyone's happy. And it's presented in the book and in the movie as being this kind of, you know, evil, fraudulent thing. But as we've, I think, established pretty well, it's really just uh, government taking the incentives away for the, the market to police itself properly. Yeah, and also in the film, um, I think he's presented as sort of a dig at uh, laissez-faire capitalism, as um, maybe at, at Atlas Shrugged and Randian ideas, because he says, how much are you worth to uh, Steve well, Carell? Yeah like this pissing contest and he says you know apparently society values me very much yeah it's this sort of typical like you know greed and money versus doing the right thing right because it's in in, in my view in the laissez-faire view um, you'll be compensated you know commiserate with the value you provide and I think they're taking a swipe at that in this and of course you know this guy's probably not earning a legitimate, um, you know, free market income. Uh, it's cronyism. You know, he, there's all these regulations and cartel arrangements in place, all these dominoes that were set up. So I think this is a totally um, distorted situation. And so to conflate that with how a free marketeer would view compensation, uh, I think is a straw man argument. Not that they're making Absolutely. an argument, but a, a representation, I believe, is, is what they're doing here, is, is digging at capitalism. Right, exactly. It's kind of the flip side of what we were talking about before, how um, people, especially on the left, only view it in terms of a question of um, regulation. That's sort of the only axis in which government is involved. Either government is not regulating enough and therefore bad things happen, or government is regulating and therefore everything is okay. Um so the kind of flip side of that is they attribute things to free market, which are not free market at all. So if this guy is, you know, making this money for providing no real social utility, then that's, you know, a, a bad free market phenomenon. But of course, in reality, it has nothing to do with it at all. It's just yet another example of government throwing a spanner in the works. Right. And then right after that, they leave the restaurant, or I guess they're all leaving Vegas the next morning. And they have this totally uh, class warfare um, symbol symbolism where they're all uh, leaving in separate, um, I guess, cut scenes. So the first uh, is the uh, this CEO manager leaving. No, wait, no, wait. Who's first? It's um, the boys from Colorado. They, they leave in a cab, like just a you know, regular old taxi cab. And then this CEO manager guy comes out, and he's in this stretch limo. And then the uh, SEC regulator girl, she's like making out with some banker dude, and they get into separate things. She gets into a cab, and he gets into like an Escalade. And then the Carell characters get out into a Lincoln Town Car. So they're you know supposed to be like middle of the road, like oh they're they they do well for themselves, but they're not evil like the other CDO manager guy. And of course the the um, punk rock garage guys. Uh, are going to be in a cab, and of course the poor government regulator she'll be in a cab. Um, did you guys catch catch that at all? Did you, it seemed in my in the face uh, a bit to me. Yeah, yeah I, I agree. I, I think it's, 
Go ahead. Oh, yeah, I agree. I think it's another one of these sort of subtle little innuendos. They really didn't miss any opportunity to lay it on, just any kind of uh, representation they could. All right, that's your cue, Robert. Nope. I'm still in the backseat on this episode. I'm just listening to what you guys are talking about. I I wish I had more to contribute, but I really, I really don't. Um, I think if it was just me doing this episode, it'd be a whole lot dumber. <laughs> Dumb and Dumber Part 3, or wait, probably Part 4, because didn't they do a Part 3 with uh, the younger kids? I forget. Well, it's Part 4 because they can't count, right? So. <laughs> Oh, that reminds me. Uh, shortly after the uh, the regulators, or sorry, the ratings agency scene, they're saying um, none of this makes sense. Like the products are, the insurance isn't changing in price, but the underlying assets are changing. It doesn't make any sense. It's two plus two equals fish. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I th- I thought that that was kind of funny because it reminded me of uh, like one of those Common Core problems, right? Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, well, here's here's a meaty one for you, Robert. Uh, my favorite line in the movie is when he's um, in the bathroom talking on the phone, and he says, "I'm jacked to the tits." That, where, where is there meat? What 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 are you talking about? Well, th- that way you get to say "jacked to the tit." It's a great great line. You want so me to so say "jacked to the tit"? Yes, say it. I'm so excited right now. I'm jacked to the tit. Yeah, because he, he discovers that he's correct in his... Uh, it took like two years of all this going down, and he's about to make this big payoff, right? Mm. This is the Ryan Gosling character? Yeah. Yeah, you know, he reminded me a lot of um, the dude in War Dogs, the uh, arms dealer guy. The fat one or the skinny one? The uh, uh, Hamilton guy. Who are you talking about? Who's the guy Hamilton? who, the guy who gets them the uh, the uh, ammo deal. Oh, the Bradley Cooper character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I can see what you're saying there. Yeah, that's an episode we just did, Daniel. It's not out just yet as you and I are recording this, but it will be released before this episode. Cool. I'll check it out. So, so Daniel, do you have some more action on this movie, or should we get into the end end game situation? Yeah, let's get into the oh. end. Or, or, sorry, I thought you were talking to me. Daniel, you, you have something to say? Oh, no, I mean, uh, I, I can give my little closing closing thoughts at the end. But Well, I wanted okay. to get into actually just a little bit about, you know, when this was being sold to the American people, when this whole thing was happening, um, government was coming out saying, well, these big banks are too big to fail, and so therefore we need to bail them out. And I had a friend at the time when I was arguing that, um, well, they're nothing too big to fail. If they fail, if they bet and they lost, then they deserve to fail. And that's how we get better service, right? I mean, exactly. some pizza company makes terrible pizza, but it keeps getting propped up by government money, then they have no incentive to make better pizza. Look at you, General um, Motors. That's right, General Motors make shitty cars. Um, but my friend at the time, he said, you know, well, I read a book, and um, if there wasn't a bailout, the entire economy would have collapsed. 
I, I didn't know any better at the time. I still don't know if that's true or not, but I, I'm curious to hear your, your take on that. Do you think that the entire economy would have collapsed? Do you think the, the bailout, even though immoral, maybe was necessarily necessary to prevent uh, worse things from happening? Was Bush right when he said, I needed to abandon capitalist principles to save capitalism itself? Oh, the former Tom Woods intro. Yeah. I missed that intro. Um, yeah, no, so uh, the bailout was not necessary at all. Um, the guy to read on this is really uh, David Stockman. Um, I'm trying to remember his uh, book he had a couple of years ago. The Big Great, book. The great, uh, great Deformation. Deformation, yeah, that's the one. Yeah, so he goes into it in great detail there. Um, however, the, the general point is um, whatever losses the bank may have had, their assets are just going to get transferred to someone else, there to their creditors, if they go into bankruptcy. Right. Um, so it's true, I think, that in the absence of a bailout, if more banks had failed than just Lehman Brothers, that probably in the short term would have been a real drying up of credit and things would have in you know, nominal terms that mainstream economists and commentators care about so much would have been, quote unquote, worse. However, I don't think that things would have been um, so extreme that it really justifies the kind of the action that was actually taken, which, as you said, was really terrible in a lot of respects. Um, I would say too big to fail is already a failure once you have once you've acknowledged that there's an institution that's too big to fail, that means something else is really wrong in your economy and you need to fix that. Mm. And that usually means get out of the way, right? <laughs> well, yeah, it's just, you know, as of course, as with everything, the real root of all the problems, is fractional reserve banking and the existence of a managed currency through the federal reserve. That's what, leads to this possibility of contagion in the financial institution as you get this kind of serial contraction of credit. So if you're in a situation where you need to be allowing certain institutions to continue just so that you avoid excessively negative symptoms of credit contraction, it's probably a sign that maybe this whole messed up world of fractional reserve banking and fiat currency isn't such a good thing in the first place. Now, I'm curious, Daniel, if um, this event would have been the Misesian final crack-up boom if allowed to run its course, or if that is still something that uh, would be in the future, regardless of whether the government stepped in in this situation or not. Do you have any uh, thoughts on that? Yeah, well, that's the uh, million-dollar question, I guess, is when, when it's all finally going to collapse. Um, I would say the final crack-up boom won't be until um, people really lose confidence in the dollar itself, because, of course, that's really the, the root of all bubbles, all the stock market bubble, housing bubble. It's all because people are so willing to um, accept all these dollars that the Treasury and the Federal Reserve keep creating. So it's hard to say if nothing had happened, if the world would have lost confidence in the dollar? Probably not, because the you know few indications we did have were that, as especially as the credit crisis expanded into other countries, people were rushing to the quote-unquote safety of the U.S. dollar. So I think the, the final crack-up boom in the Misesian sense is still some way off, but you know every time we go through this cycle, we're getting closer. 
Right, okay. Uh, I've often viewed this uh, situation with the bailout as um, a bad thing, but fortunate for me personally, because it bought me more time to get into a better position, right? So I was able to, uh, I was a prepper for a little while. And, um, but it sounds like based on this conversation that it wouldn't have necessarily collapsed to that level uh, if government hadn't stepped in to begin with. So my thought that this bought me some time really doesn't uh, hold any water. Well, I don't know. That's just, I, it's, it's, I don't hold my opinion with particularly strong conviction here. Um, but yeah, that's, I would say we had some time regardless. However, I'm sure we all probably benefited from having such a, you know, um, lesson in all this, right? I'm sure, you know, I, I certainly learned a lot from um, this whole crisis and inspired me to learn more about Austrian economics and about what was going on in the world. So I think in that sense, it's probably, it's been quite a silver lining in terms of the number of people who've started to wake up and see the light. Yeah, yeah, like I was saying earlier, that was along with Ron Paul, those are probably the two biggest contributors towards me going down this path. So I think if this hadn't happened, um, I may not have discovered this at all. Right. So silver lining. Silver lining. Uh, all right, so why don't we wrap up uh, this movie real quick here. So we were at the, the end, I think, where the collapse happened. Carell finally sells his positions. Uh, the Michael Burry character ends up being positive almost uh, 500% in his hedge fund after being down like something like 30 or 40% when everyone wanted to pull out of it. Um, and it's, it's argued that uh, they were able to operate with moral hazard because they knew, the bankers knew that the taxpayers would bail them out and that they would blame immigrants poor people uh, in an epilogue or, you know, words on the screen at the end, I guess that'd be an epilogue, right? Uh, they say overall $5 trillion were lost, something like 8 million people lost their jobs, 6 million people lost their home, um, and that the Michael Burry character tried to contact the government after all of this went down to tell them, you know, hey, this is how I knew this was all going to happen, and they ignored him, and then the IRS audited him, audited him four times, and the FBI questioned him, but they, they ignored his... Uh, the information that he had. And then I guess the last thing that they mention is that now in 2015, back when this movie came out, uh, there's a new product called a, quote, bespoke tranche opportunity, end quote, which uh, is described as just another name for a CDO. So like the end of a lot of movies where they say, or where they show a teaser for the next film, uh, they're short, sort of arguing that, we're, we're going to put ourselves back in this same position again. Right, yeah, that was obviously a very deliberate attempt to make sure they drove home the message one final time. Because the, the point you made before about how the uh, FBI and IRS were just giving Michael Burry a hard time, that's kind of a little little encouraging bit of a anti-government um, attitude there. Just obviously government didn't want this guy to be causing any trouble. So they wanted to keep going with the way things had been. So, but then of course they undo that by making it clear that really it's the banks and the CDOs that are the real bad guys here. 
Yeah, it seems like they're making the, uh, we just need the right people in government, and we need to, to fund it properly for it to uh, do its job, and that would solve the problem. Right, yes, and not allow selfish people to stop the government from, from regulating everything that needs to be regulated. Yeah, so it's just anti-hands-off government. <laughs> yeah, pretty much, yeah. So that's pretty much the film. Uh, do you want to go through some just final impressions and uh, overall conclusions? Uh, Robert, why don't you start on that, and then uh, we'll go to Daniel. Sure, I mean, for all its fault, um, it's actually a fairly well-made movie. I mean, I, I thought it was entertaining, the good performances by everybody. It was well-written. It told a clear story, which I can appreciate. Um, I waver on, I mean, for all it didn't say, I mean, really we're criticizing for all it doesn't say and less of what it did say, um, which, you know, I mean, it's got a perspective. It tells its tale. Uh, in my view, it, it gives government a pass in saying that, oh, we just needed, the, the only fault was that it, you know, there wasn't enough regulation and there needs to be more government involvement and that's what would have prevented this from happening from all these greedy, greedy capitalists. Um, it's not, anyway, it, it's, it's fine. It, it, it's actually a decent movie. Um, but it, yeah, it gets the um, the takeaway wrong in my view. Um, uh, yeah, that's I guess that's all I have to say. <laughs> Daniel, too. Yeah, so yeah, I agree. This is a good movie. It was fun in a lot of ways. I loves Christian Bale. Love Ryan Gosling. Uh, very entertaining movie. And as I said before, they were really just being faithful to the message that Michael Lewis was trying to convey in the book. So. If anything, they maybe added a little bit more suspicion of government than you than you get in the book. So I applaud them for oh, that. Really? Um, well, especially the uh, point I made earlier, I believe before we were on the air, about how they refer to Alan Greenspan as one of the architects of the entire crisis, or something like that. All right. That's a that's a pretty that's a pretty big one. Although unfortunately, they never really develop that line of thinking in any significant way. So in terms of what the movie gets wrong, basically. They're trying to paint a picture that the whole causality here is greedy banks start selling these complicated securities. Eventually, they go bad, and that's what causes the economy to collapse. So there are a lot of problems with that. Um, first of all, it's not really clear just how, from these securities going bad, how that leads to economic collapse. At the end, they say, you know, all these trillions disappeared from the accounts or something like that. Well, where did they go? I mean, the banks didn't make the money. There were these few outsiders who did, uh, but nothing, those are just a drop in the bucket compared to all the people who were losing money. So what exactly happened there? And the reality, of course, is that this was a classic example of Austrian business cycle theory with a temporary unsustainable boom caused by low interest rates and credit expansion by the Fed, creating illusory prosperity too much investment in the earlier stages of production. In this case, it was all these housing construction starts, which turned out to be unprofitable. And then it turns out there's a real loss due to the misallocation of capital into unproductive channels because of the false signals being sent by the artificially low interest rates. And that's what causes the real impoverishment and the disappearance of all the trillions of, of dollars. So 
it's unfortunate that that kind of shallow explanation was, you know, deemed plausible by so many people that they could make a movie out of it, but it's completely bunk. It doesn't really answer the question at all of what causes aggregate prosperity to expand and contract. And beyond that, there's a lot of talk about the kind of stupidity and fraudulence and everything like that. I think we've already covered that pretty well in the earlier comments, so I won't go over that too much again, but just uh, it's really clear that what's really going on here is a lack of incentives to fix these problems in the economy and once they've gotten going. Lack of incentives on any part of anyone in the financial sector caused by all these government distortions, which we enumerated pretty clearly. So just kind of to uh, sum up all this, like, I don't know if you remember, there used to be these um, memes you would see on Facebook with uh, Gene Wilder looking critical, uh, looking quizzical, um, and there'd be some sort of caption above it. So this would be kind of hard to fit into a Facebook meme, but I think the caption would be like something, something like, mortgage lenders were forced to lend to unqualified borrowers through the Community Reinvestment Act. Investment banks knew they could accept these loans because of the implicit guarantee by the Fed. Investors thought they could trust the AAA ratings given by this artificial cartel of rating agencies. And, of course, the whole bubble was created by the Federal Reserve. And then Gene Wilder's saying, tell me more about this free market. <laughs> yeah, so if you just said that, Daniel, this whole episode could have been five minutes. And I don't think that would fit on a meme. But uh, <laughs> it, Exactly. It does... It's kind of it's, it's an imaginary meme. <laughs> But it does fit into the show. Uh, so I don't know. For me, I think that doing this show and always looking for an angle on the show has ruined movies for me like this. I just see the propaganda message, honestly. Um, I see this as a call to action to call your congressman and tell them to enact more regulations on the banks and that, uh, capitalism is bad and the government is good if you get the right people in place and pay your taxes because we need to increase our budget. Um, so I, I sort of had uh, maybe a tainted viewing of this. I mean, sure, the acting was fine. It, it did seem kind of documentary style to me. And then they broke the fourth wall so many times, which, I, you know, now, now that I think about it after you were talking about it, Daniel, that, that it was a nice way of um, explaining some of the more complicated um products or descriptions in the movie, but they did it uh, way more than that. Like, there were those three instances, instances where they're explaining stuff, but then um, they have many of the characters just sort of do these aside uh, to the camera, and I don't know, that just seemed a bit gimmicky to me. So I, I sort of have a neutral to negative view of this movie, um, mostly because I kind of view it as, as wrong and a propaganda piece. But I'm glad that we did it because we got to talk about a lot of these uh, actual factors that played into this, all the dominoes that got set up to be knocked down. Uh, it's really uh, the government regulations that were in place that, that set all of this in motion and, and even made it possible to happen. And then, of course, they expanded uh, the money supply and credit supply that fueled the boom fueled the speculation, of, and of course it had to collapse uh, after all of that. So that's sort of my two cents on the, the movie itself. Um, I think that uh, the Tom Woods book is a great one to recommend, uh, Meltdown. Also the David Stockman book, The Great 
Deformation. And if you want a little bit more of a historical work, Murray Rothbard's America's Great Depression, uh, where he outlined the Austrian business cycle theory uh, that was developed by Mises and Hayek, uh, but he does it in a very clear-eyed fashion in his work, uh, America's Great Depression. So that's the final recommendation that I will leave the audience with for this show. And uh, Daniel, why don't you just tell us a little bit uh, uh, where people can find uh, what you're working on and uh, how to get in contact with you, and then we'll close the show out. Okay, so, yeah, if you're a libertarian or if you're a fan of Tom Woods, join the Tom Woods show, and you can, uh, you can, you can talk to me there or find me on Facebook, and I'm going to be working on an ebook called The Truth About Economics, and I will be blogging associated with that at thetruthabouteconomics.net, so check back there later, and that's where I'll be. All right, well, thank you for coming on. You've been an excellent guest. We really appreciate you spending your uh, Friday evening with us. Um, we also do a, a Saturday night economics club, so you know we're, we're big swinging party guys. Uh, we <laughs> devote our Friday and Saturday evenings to this stuff. <laughs> well, I'll have to get in on that action. That sounds like my kind of thing. All right, I'll, I'll send you an invite right after this. So, uh, Robert, you got any uh, final words you want to tell people what they can do to help us out, where they can find our stuff, and maybe uh, get us over that 100 subscriber mark on the YouTube? Yeah, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel. What's the name of the uh, – it's not iTunes anymore. It's Apple Podcast. Is that right? Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a mouthful. The former iTunes, now Apple Podcast. Yeah, give us a rating, give us a like, give us some stars, whatever you got to do on the Apple Podcast if you do enjoy this sort of thing. Um, we would appreciate it, certainly. It helps uh, inspire us and it helps motivate us and uh, gets us out there. So, yeah, we would appreciate that. Um, I want to thank our guest. It's fantastic listening to you. definitely brought the expertise to this topic um, far more than I know I could have brought. Uh, I know Daniel um, has a, a breadth of knowledge on this, but you brought a certain depth to it that was fantastic. And uh, certainly looking forward to... Um, all your future works and you're definitely your, your, your new book that's going to be coming out this year, perhaps next year, right? The truth about economics. I told people I'm doing it this year, so that's still the goal. All right. Excellent. So yeah. Um, thanks for listening, everybody. Take care of yourselves and we'll be back on the next episode. Indeed. Yeah. Thank you guys for listening. Uh, Actualanarchy.com and readrothbard.com. Like, comment, share, subscribe on the YouTube, check us out on the Facebook. Click on any of the Amazon links, uh, all that other good stuff. Uh, thank you and good night. The Chipmunks. C-H-I-P-M-U-N-K. We're the chipmunks. Guaranteed to brighten your day. Do, 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 do